Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod is the city of Vancouver's renter's office. A much needed service or a reminder the city needs to get back to basics. Plus, climate fear-mongering. We look at how it affects our ability to solve the real challenges before us. And as protests rage in France, we look at whether it's time Canada raises its retirement age. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Last night, Vancouver City Council made the controversial decision to shut down its renter's office, office which provides tenants with information on their rights. ABC Councilor Lenny Zhao put forward the uh, amendment uh, last night to close the renter's office. It was backed by his majority, ABC Party. Now, cities have say that the office has cost taxpayers $1.8 million over three years. Council has instead approved $750,000 in grants uh, to nonprofit rental organizations that do similar work. Those will be paid uh, from the empty homes tax fund. Now, the policy change comes as Vancouver is once again dubbed the most expensive city in Canada to rent, and critics say it's already extremely difficult to navigate uh, with the high demand, low supply, and challenges like rent evictions as well. Well, joining us now to discuss the policy shift is Vancouver City Councillor Adrian Carr from the Green Party, who opposed last night's motion. Adrian, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, good to be on your show. Thanks a lot. Uh, what does the closure of the renter's office mean in your mind? A loss of services that are unique. Um, for people who are very vulnerable. Uh, there's, uh, when we established the renter's office, it was because no other organization was providing very specific services to help people navigate the many different rules, regulations, um, laws, bylaws, both provincial, but mostly all the city's own, um, to help them to not be evicted. What specifically, uh, when you say that you're providing information that is very specific to the city, what, 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 are, what is that specific, specific information that you're talking about? Well, there's lots. Um, I mean, I think the most important one is that we do have our own tenant relocation and protection policy called the TRPP um, that, uh, that really um, uh, supports tenants when a building is being demolished um, or even radically reno- renovated. Um, so uh, it actually requires that tenants um, do have relocation support um, from whoever's doing the development. Um, and we've amped that up to in the Broadway plan to become some of the most, um, I think, progressive tenant protections in all of North America, uh, offering people money, um, support, like financial support, for the duration of the time they won't be in the building, if it is being replaced um, or renewed. Um, we also have a single residence um, uh, accommodation bylaw to help people live in SROs um, and make sure that they're not renovated unfairly. We have an Airbnb bylaw. We have permitting and licensing around uh, renovations. We have plan- area plans. I mean, it's a, a complicated system. And no other organization understands it like we ourselves do. So our staff help people understand it, help them understand their rights under it, and help protect them uh, from unfair renovation. But are there not, um, you know, nonprofit groups, the provincial government itself, which is uh, plays a significant role as well when it comes to rental and rental law, uh, isn't that service available to a certain degree uh, already? Well, there are other services, but they don't duplicate what we have. That's why we started the the uh, renter's office. Um, so there is, a, for example, the Provincial Residential Tenancy Branch, the RTB, which oversees the Provincial Residential Tenancy Act, the RTA. Um, and that's a, that's a resource at the provincial level. They don't offer any information about what the city is doing and our bylaws and our laws. Um, encompass. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a good service for, for understanding provincially what people's rights are. Um, there are organizations, the best known, I think, of which is uh, called TRAC, the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. It provides legal representation. And so 
certainly our um, renter office um, sends people to track for legal. Re- we don't we don't do the legal representation. They do. So it's a unique service. It's not the only organization that does that service, but um, it's a good one. And, and it too should it can't be replaced. So it should be continue to be supported. There's another organization called Access Pro Bono, and that's kind of the, the end game when somebody has you know tried to fight a renovation. Um, or uh, 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 what they feel to be an inappropriate eviction uh, from their um, from their apartment, so they offer uh, representation sort of as a last resort when somebody's got to go to court and fighting an eviction and doesn't have any legal representation. Um, then it's all pro bono. Um, so there are, there are good good organizations. As I say, they are unique in themselves, and they don't duplicate what our office does. What do you say to the argument, if you look at the last municipal election in Vancouver, part of uh, the way um, things transpired is a desire from the public uh, for City Hall to get back to the basics, which is, you know, I'm broadly generalizing here, but community centers, potholes, garbage pickup, the, the basics that one expects City Hall to focus on, not uh, a renter's office. That should be left to the province and uh, nonprofits who provide that service. What do you say to that argument that this is part of the broader message that the public sent to Vancouver City Hall is stick with what you're supposed to do and the renter's office isn't part of that? Not that it's not important, but the, that can be handled by other uh, organizations and other levels of government. Right. So uh, the role that cities play in our democracy has expanded over time. And uh, true enough, we've always been at the city level, the, the uh, level of government that has made sure we've got streets that don't have potholes and good traffic uh, and movement and sidewalks and parks and recreation and sewage systems and water delivery and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but the world has changed a lot since the origins of cities and, and city um, jurisdictions. And um, we have taken on, um, in an evolutionary kind of way, the services that are really important to, um, to people and, and the laws that go along with it. As I say, we've got laws that protect um, protect people who rent in the city um, from being unfairly uh, uh, evicted um, and laws that um, make sure that that um, the, the when, when you know somebody owns a building that they maintain it to a level uh, which is livable and, um, and and doesn't cause harm to people so these kinds of laws um, they may not have been in originally when Vancouver was founded in 1886, but we understand now that living in a city is um, requires a lot of um, laws and uh, policies that ensure that that living is safe for people. It's healthy. Um, that there uh, there is a, a sense of justice in the system as well. Cities. You know, we all want to live in a city that is safe, healthy, that, you know, where people have, where no one's unfairly treated and the vulnerable are supported as well. So, yeah, our laws, uh, our bylaws, our jurisdiction has evolved over time. And, Do you, and uh, I'm curious, I'm sorry, Ms. Carr, I'm curious, does any, other no, municip- okay. uh, does any other municipality have a renter's office in the Lower Mainland that you know of? Yeah, inspired by us, Burnaby got one. <laughs> Burnaby, the Surrey does not have one, yep. so Burnaby's the other one that does have a renter's Not that office. I know of, yep. Okay. Not that I know of. So you think this is this is still where the cities are actually headed, and it is required, as you said in your in your previous answer, it's not where, uh, it, it, it's as you say, it, it fulfills a, a role uh, where the provincial uh, tenancy branch does not fill or other nonprofits can't fill. It is specific to Vancouver, very specific to the city. Yep, Absolutely. And um, and it is about good governance in my mind. It's about ensuring um, that people who live in our city um, are protected in terms of having a decent uh, life without fear of being renovicted and, and have access to housing that they can afford. Adrian, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoy our conversation.
Yeah, I did too. Have a great day. Fire services are definitely an important part of uh, any city's budget, and they are one of the core uh, services that we all pay for. And I think everybody would be supportive of that. And today, the Vancouver Fire Rescue Service says that half of the, the past year's fire deaths are attributed to rechargeable battery fires. In fact, the fire department said the city had 10 fire deaths in 2022 alone. Joining me now to talk about fire deaths and rechargeable batteries is Captain Matthew Trudeau. He's a public information officer with Vancouver Fire Rescue Services. Captain Trudeau, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Uh, how much of this is, I saw the 22 numbers are quite um, interesting in regards to the fire deaths that, you, that the, the department is talking about. Is this something that's just a, a one-year thing where it's an outlier or is this something that's been trending for a while now? This has been trending for the last couple of years since we've uh, been focusing our reporting and data collection on this. And the, there has been a, a significant uptake in battery fires, where, and it, we're seeing consistent level of them over the last couple of years as well. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with some of these uh, battery fires? What can the public do? For sure, it, our first step is always the, the educational component in giving people information about the proper use and safe use around these batteries. And from what we've seen from a lot of the fire cause is we're really asking people to be mindful around just use where they're inherently safe, but really being cautious around the to not overcharge these batteries and not just plug them in, walk away, and leave them charging for a significant period of time. In as well, we're asking for people to mainly follow manufacturers' guidelines and recommendations on the use of them. And we have seen fires caused by the modification of, of these systems, which puts significant strain and heating into these batteries and causes failures mm-hmm. as well. Uh, what kind of products are we talking about generally? There's no specific device or appliance that we're, we're seeing this problem with. It is just overall use of rechargeable batteries. We've seen fires in uh, cell phones, in laptops, in e-bikes, e-scooters. We've seen them all over, so it's inherent with the, the device. Again, they are safe, uh, and they have a very low failure rate, but when they're used improperly, overheated, overcharged, modified, or damaged, that's when we start seeing the problems. Uh, I guess part of this also has to do with buying uh, products, and with, I mean, the batteries themselves, the products as well, I guess, and recharging equipment. I mean, in, in the era of Amazon, you can type in rechargeable battery, or you can buy knockoffs from anywhere in the world, particularly uh, in you know huge manufacturing nations like China. And that's part of it too, is it not? Correct me if I'm wrong, that people do buy sometimes cheaper products, knockoff products, and they may not meet uh, the manufacturer's uh, requirements. Is that part of it as well when regards to the quality of a battery or even recharging equipment? Uh, yes, absolutely. So there, ha- there has been seen from our investigators, and, and understandably, some of these batteries do cost a lot from the manufacturer of you know over $100 for a battery. And when you can go on to different platforms and buy one for a third or a quarter of their cost, it's understandable for people to do that, especially with um, uh, just just restrictions and, and money right now and being able to afford uh, that, that cost. Um, but we're urging people just to go with um, branded names and go with the manufacturer's batteries so that they have a uh, higher quality assurance mm-hmm. and um, a higher level of safety if so So we're not getting a lower quality battery that can, again, lead to uh, to, to fires. Uh, I actually got a, a lesson in that many years ago when I was living in China. Uh, and now you've been, obviously been inter- interviewed for uh, TV crews and TV networks. And, and as you know, the, the cameramen carry pretty big cameras and they're powered by batteries. And I recall at one point when we were traveling, you were asked to put the camera batteries in, in, a, in a separate uh, bag. And because uh, one or two networks, I guess, were buying the cheaper batteries, I guess they came out of China. And a couple times in flights, they, there was smoke coming from them. Um, and it became an issue. So I think uh, that's where my last question came from, from experience. Um, you, it, does, it does happen and, and they do, do overheat. Um, in regards to just the, the, the requirements and stuff, like that. Uh, is there anything the fire departments collectively as a fire 
service, not just Vancouver, but nationally, that you, any role that you can play in regards to getting some of these manufacturers to perhaps raise their standards or meet a certain standard? Has been any lobbying on the broader fire service community in regards to working with some of these manufacturers? Absolutely. This is going to be one of the most significant challenges for all fire services going to be addressing this uh, life safety risk associated with, with rechargeable batteries. And we're seeing it across Canada, the United States. It is all over the place. It's, it's in all developed nations. We've seen it in Europe, in the UK. It is all over the place for uh, seeing these failures. And when they do fail, it creates a, a significant risk to the people around it with the, the toxic levels of, of um, combustion products that get released off of it and the fire and explosion has, hazard that happens with this internal runaway effect. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know uh, there's government agencies and various groups who have been collecting data in her meeting to kind of address this, but it, it doesn't stop the uh, sometimes the... Uh, again, the off-brand batteries that are being sold. That's just why we're trying to get that education across is if people can, please get those um, uh, batteries that you can, you can rely upon and they can trust and have a lower failure rate, but also use the batteries uh, safely and according to the manufacturer. Uh, Captain Trudeau, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I was a bit surprised the other day when I was looking at uh, the weather forecast on my uh, iPhone and uh, they had mentioned that it was going to get cooled off for the next four or five days uh, here in uh, Vancouver. I was actually had put away my winter coat, but the number, the, the temperature is going to be dipping uh, for the next few days, uh, which is, uh, I guess, part of winter. But climatologists are predicting the warm, warming El Nino climate pattern is cycling its way back and it'll push up global temperatures even higher later this year and through 2024. Joining us now to talk about El Nino uh, and uh, um, the climate overall is David Phillips, Senior Climatologist for Environment Canada. David, thank you for joining us. Well, Jess, thank you for inviting me aboard. Uh, it's uh, always great to talk about the weather. Yeah, it is, and uh, we seem to be spending a lot more time talking about it. It's yes, had such an impact sure. uh, on our lives. Uh, first and foremost, what does this mean in regards to El Nino coming? What, what will that mean overall for us? Well, Jess, you know, it's a little premature to go there. I mean, I, I think it's headed that way for sure. Mm-hmm. What we do now is uh, is La Nina. Now, La Nina is the... You've been having this for three years, uh, and it's affected certainly your winters, some of the coldest uh, coldest winters and snowy conditions that because of La Nina. This is this body of water in the tropical Pacific, you know, a thousand kilometers away from British Columbia, but it has a profound effect, uh, particularly in western Canada. When there's a La Nina, I, I would go to the bank on saying what your winters are going to be like. And if it's El Nino, that is the warmer water than normal, mm-hmm. then, um, hey, um, you you have usually balmy kind of uh, of winters, and uh, and typically years also are tend to be on the on the milder side. So it's a very important element in in uh, to, to determine what our seasons are going to be. It doesn't really affect so much the day to day weather in terms of forecasting it, mm-hmm. but if you're looking at seasonal forecasts, what the next month, the next season is going to be, the next year, then it really does improve your batting average uh, when it's in between which is something that somebody just recently called La Nada, which means nothing. And that would be when the water temperature in that same body of ocean is, say, between plus 0.5 and minus 0.5. Kind of neutral, normal, it's sort of right in between. And so that's nothing, and so therefore you don't really get a signal from that. But when it's colder than than minus 0.5, well, and it stays for three months, then it's a La Nina episode. If it's warmer than that, uh, than a half a degree, well, then we give it an El Nino name. But this one, Jazz, has been around for three months, uh, three years, and we've seen really um, having a profound effect on 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 climates, not just in Canada, 
but sometimes it affects droughts in some parts of the world and sometimes floods here. So it's a very important element uh, to getting the seasonal forecasting right if you've got an El Nino or La Nina. Well, you raise a very good point. If, if we've, been in with, we've been dealing with La Nina, and as yes. you say, it includes colder, snowier conditions uh, through BC winters, it's also, we've also had very uh, warm summers even in the midst of a La Nina, and you think about uh, potentially um, the heat dome of 2021. Yes. Uh, so uh, that's one of the reasons that caught my eyes that we're heading into a warmer period, and we were supposedly in a cooler period, but we've had some very hot summers even in this cooler period. Exactly. And, and this is the point, Jazz. You make a really good point because we know the signal between La Nina El Nino in our winters is pretty, pretty strong. Uh, you can almost go to the bank on it. But it doesn't necessarily hold true for our summers. We don't see the kind of signal. If you've got La Nina, what kind of summers do you have? Because you're right. Last year was the warmest summer on record. This year was the third warmest on 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 on, on uh, record. Mm-hmm. And that yet we had this year. And and when we look at British Columbia this year, it was on average about the in 75 years the 20th warmest. But it was really two kind of years. You had the winter and the spring that were very cool. I mean, you called it January or springuary. I mean, you just couldn't buy a good, decent day there from, you know, from March, April, May, and, and into June. I remember that. And finally, summer came. And oh, my gosh. I mean, it was the, I think it was the, the fourth warmest summer on record. Last year was the warmest on record. Both of those La, La Nina kind of years. And then the fall I mean, this past fall was was somewhat gorgeous. I mean, the 10th warmest in 75 years. So so really we had a kind of a cool beginning, which fit that La Nina pattern, but the, the, the second half was warmer than normal. But again, there's not that sort of signal between what is the warm season going to be like from La Nina. Now, the current situation is that we see the uh, this going to a neutral situation. And so then the normal kind, the model seemed to suggest, well, from neutral in the spring, mm-hmm. because, hey, La Nina is dead in the water. It's, it's really finished. And so, and perhaps maybe the fact that January has been the first month in three that have been warmer than normal, maybe that's an early signal. I don't know. But certainly we think that the, the, the El Nino, the warmer than normal, is coming. And when you look into the history, when you have an, an El Nino year, you have generally your warmest summers, your warmest years are during El Nino years. Your coldest years are during with La Nina years. So for British Columbia, and really a lot of part of Canada, it has a good kind of signal, but very strong in the winter, but so-so in the, in the summer. So my sense is that, my gosh, what we've seen in the last, few, last couple of years, at least, Jazz, is that we've seen some very warm temperatures globally, and yet we had a La Nina, cooler yeah. waters, and it was masking that warmth. So you can imagine how warm it would have been if there had been no um, uh, La Nina. And so this is what has concerned people, uh, climatologists around the world, is that if we're headed to a, an El Nino situation and it becomes a, a strong El Nino, you can have weak ones or moderate or, or strong ones, if the size of the pool of water is large and the water temperatures could be two, two degrees warmer than normal, wow, this will really cook the atmosphere and create even warmer temperatures than we've seen in, uh, in recent years because we've had the La Nina. So this is the kind of concern that climatologists have, is that we get out of this La Nina phase, and, and what are we going to see? What kind of a stick, a stick a thermometer in British Columbia in the summer, and what's it going to say, given the fact you've had the, uh, the, the warmest and the fourth warmest in 75 years, and both of those were La Nina summers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you think back back to like a Soyuz uh, temperatures there in the Okanagan, Southern Okanagan hitting in the low 40s that could go higher. Yeah. We've had elected officials here talking about us uh, to getting together in the Metro Vancouver area to making sure we have enough cooling stations now open up yes. in, in the summertime, particularly for seniors. So it does add an, a different layer, uh, not just on the temperature side, but on the public policy side. And so how do we uh, um, uh, deal with these situations? The Premier in British Columbia has already said that, look, we've got to have everything has to be seen through the lens of climate change whether it be uh, fighting forest fires or preparing for the forest fire season, and even regards to how we build our highways now. So this is all part of that broader conversation. 
you're so right. It has a profound effect on everybody, and 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 you know who who would have thought of of heat waves like we saw last year in in British Columbia. I still I've been in business fifty five years, Jazz. Mm-hmm. I shake my head of what we saw last year, twenty twenty one, in terms of not just the heat, but the the drought, the searing forest fires, the flood of floods, the 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 freezing at the end of the year. I mean, it, it was the year that that. You know, weather assaulted you. And, and we know it's just not just day-to-day weather. The model or the, the science has shown that without human intervention, that heat wave would not have been the heat wave it was. Yeah. I mean, it was something that would have been just without people, would have happened maybe once every 1,500 years. But with people, with the fact that we're contributing to that, well, I mean, you could say it's going to be something like every five to ten years. So, hey, we've got to deal with this a lot better, a lot more uh, in all sectors than we have in the past. It's not just something that it's about the Arctic warming up. It's about the southern part of Canada, too, facing things that, hey, used to, we used to think this was in Bangladesh or Botswana or Bolivia. No. But, my gosh, it's now in Burnaby and Brandon and, and other places in southern Canada. David, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate, appreciate okay, your Jazz, visiting. Nice to be with you. It was fun talking to David Phillips, Senior Climatologist for Environment Canada, about El Nino returning, but he raises a very good point. We've been in La Nina years for the last three years. We've been having cooler winters, but we've had some of the hottest summers, and now we're heading into a warmer uh, uh, warmer spell with El Nino over the next three years. So it's a wake-up call for all of us. Uh, and our next caller, or sorry, our next guest, has also uh, been talking about this issue probably more than anybody in British Columbia, and he brings a lot of knowledge with him. Uh, Andrew Weaver, of course, is a former Green Party leader, but he's a professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria. Uh, He uh, has been asking his fellow climate scientists to tone down the rhetoric and environmentalists too, I guess, that there's there's just better ways and more constructive ways to contribute when it comes to tackling the challenges before us when it comes to climate change. Now think about this just for a second. In 2021, the journal Nature surveyed 10,000 young people between the ages of 16 to 25 years old in 10 countries and what they found there with with talking to these kids is there was distress there was anger and other negative emotions Um, this eco anxiety is what they call it it's having a negative impact on respondents daily lives and it's partly caused by the feeling that governments aren't doing enough to avoid a climate catastrophe i think we all have to collectively get there and i wanted to talk to andrew about that today andrew thank you for joining us Pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Jazz. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, nice talking to you as well. Uh, tell me, this conversation, I know you spoke to Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Uh, I, I didn't actually speak to Vaughn Palmer about oh, that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, just... no, I, I wrote a blog, a long blog, and, and Vaughn obviously picked it up. It was quite well received um, internationally, and uh, I guess Vaughn just proactively found it. I, you were the one who pointed out the article to me. I didn't even know it was written. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, but you had some really good points there. First and foremost, let's focus on climate scientists and perhaps environmentalists as well. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what, what your concern has been in regards to the broader conversation. Sure. Thanks, Jeff. So, you know, I've been working in the field of climate science since the 1980s, and I've, I've basically seen it all. I've been on the front lines of this, both uh, in the science world, as well as, as you know, sitting on the other side of the ledge for me, in the legislature, too, mm-hmm. trying to advance climate policy. Uh, I was in the ledge for eight years, and prior to me going into the ledge, climate change, global warming was really, with the students, and I teach hundreds of students a year, was really a, 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 a significant issue that they were worried about, sort of. But it was someone else's problem, somewhere else in the world, sometime in the future. Eight years later, I come back, and I'm literally scraping people off the floor because the level of anxiety within the student body, I've never seen anything like it. And a lot of it is grounded in rhetoric, and it's not actually grounded in science. And so I've been exploring what has changed in those eight years. And, and I, I think I know, but uh, I think a lot of it was done through well-meaning um, scientists continuing to express concern about global warming, as they should. But the rhetoric is continuing, and I think we've come to a point where those in the scientific community, and, and I am one, um, because we have privilege and agency in this problem, and what I mean by that is we know what the problem is, we've defined it internationally, we are in a very special place because we know better than others what it is, yet we cannot abdicate our, resp- our position in society and pretend somehow we're just the same as everyone else. We have a duty and responsibility as a collective to help advance the solutions and not just shout at others and say you should do it. Because 
as you know, Jazz, and sitting in the ledge. A lot of them don't know what to do. I know that a lot of the political establishment want to do something, but they don't know what to do. And, and the rhetoric of that, of that uh, kind of uh, setup means that often nothing gets done. Mm-hmm. And so I was hoping that what we would do is our, my scientific community and, and others, and there are many others, would recognize that we are scaring people now. And when people get scared, they shut down or they start to disassociate with an issue. And I've had feedback, quite a bit of feedback on that blog post. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying precisely that, that people have shut down, they're sad, they're, they're grieved. And we don't need to be, because as I've tried to say for those eight years in the legislature, global warming remains to the single biggest issue we have to deal with, but it is Im- an empowering issue, because if you see it through the lens of the opportunity and, and, and innovation, the opportunity creates for innovation in dealing with it, we could actually be ahead of this. And it's very empowering for individuals dealing with climate grief to actually work towards solutions, because not only do, do they alleviate their own grief, but they help others. So my hope is to try to get the scientific community um, to show the leadership so that others will follow and actually move our rhetoric and, 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 and conversation to solutions as opposed to shouting at the clouds. Do you think part of it, though... The matter is, Jess, yep. the, big, the big problem in the world today is not climate change. It's Vladimir Putin and what's going on in Russia right now. And... You know, let us, let us be clear, the more we fight amongst our chel- ourselves, the more that people like Putin take advantage of that. And that is exactly what we're seeing in the Donbass region, the oil and gas fields region of the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, it's, it, and, and so it, I just would like us all to, to, to reflect upon our language in this debate. Um, I would agree with what you have to say. And, 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 and polit- in, the, in the issue of climate change, we've turned it into a left-right debate as well, black and white, exactly. yes or no. And, 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 and you know... How do you change that, though? I mean, I think part of the blame is also elected officials as well, that they, they get too enamored with the industry or they're too enamored on the other side, that it is there is a middle way somewhere. And I, I have difficulty defining it as well. But part of it is, I think, a political class that, that, that needs to feel a bit more urgency in this. Jazz, I agree with you. And I think you and I, more than others who are a little independent from the political scene, know that more than most because we... Mm-hmm saw it firsthand. Uh, I know that I tried very hard in the legislature to come up the middle and point out that climate policy is not, is, and try to always focus in the middle, working with the BC Liberals or working with the BC NDP. Unfortunately, um, the ext- in our society, we have extremists, and those extremists like to amplify their voices. So I was not popular with the extreme left, the eco-socialist left, who thought that what we needed is a revolution in essence. And, and, and conversely, I would not be popular with the the kind of freedom convoy on the right. Mm-hmm. We are giving those, those extremists, in my view, far too much voice in today's uh, political discourse and societal discourse. Most of them are not representative of any others in the small echo chambers for which they represent, but with the Internet and, frankly, with, in my, in, in my view, the desperate attempt of many in the media to try to feel relevant as, as many of our, of our society move towards online means and ways of getting news, we tend to ratchet up stories and pick and focus on the extremes when what we really need to do is focus on the center. Yeah. And that's what I'm hoping we can do in the climate debate because, you know, Greta Thunberg, what she did was she made it a mainstream issue. She was able to make this something that if you go to poll after poll after poll, 80% of people in most every country in the world are willing to do something to deal with it. So let's focus on those 80%, not yeah. those 20% on the, on the far right. Andrew, we've run out of time. I want to have you on soon. I want to talk to you a little bit about LNG uh, as well. Uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll get you back on. Thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure, Jess. Thank you. It's been a beautiful and relatively quiet day in Vancouver. It's exactly the opposite uh, in regards to what's happening uh, in France. More than a million people, yes, a million people, have joined a day of protests and strikes, according to France's Interior Ministry, against plans to push back the age of retirement from 62 uh, to 64. Some 80,000 protests took to the streets of Paris uh, alone. Take a listen. It's a mass protest against President Macron's plans to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Here's what some commuters are saying about today's action. It's very difficult. The train I was supposed to take this morning was cancelled. I hope things would be okay in my town, that there will be buses running and I'll be able to move around. 
I support the strike action. It's a way to express dissatisfaction with the government's decisions. It's good to have a dialogue. No, I don't understand. Because it's always the same people who go on strike, those in the transport sector. We're also going to retire one day, but we in the private sector don't go on strike, and we're the ones who suffer. No, it's not okay. And that has been an ongoing debate, not only in France, but many um, uh, G7 nations. Now, France spends nearly 14% of its GDP on state pensions, a significant number. Uh, Now, as you may uh, recall, uh, and this is all, by the way, to to help France, the the French government, to tackle a pension funding deficit. Uh, You may recall here in Canada uh, that uh, we had moved our uh, retirement age to 67 under uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And when Justin Trudeau was elected, the majority government with the, the federal liberals, they moved it down to 65 once again. But it's an ongoing conversation. Joining me now to talk about uh, pension reform and a few other things in the news is Global BC's Richard Zussman. He's, of course, their legislative reporter. Thank you for joining us, Richard. My pleasure, Jess. Thanks for having me. So walk, walk me through this. What are your thoughts on this? I was watching this and I go, you know, one thing the French do very well is protests and, and I admire mm-hmm. them for it. But it is an ongoing issue, isn't it? Across uh, Canada, uh, the U.S., where I think the United States, their, their official uh, retirement age is 67 as well. Uh, what are your think- thoughts on this? Do you think we'll get to a point where we one day may go back to the official retirement age being 67 uh, here in Canada? It is a massive pressure point for various different reasons. First mm-hmm. off, any change in this demographic has an impact at the polls. We know that old people vote and they turn out in numbers. And that cohort between 60 and 70 uh, are the ones that can largely dictate or have in the past been able to dictate the outcome of elections. So governments are slow to make changes that will have profound financial impacts on that group. But the other pressure point that we're feeling are these boomers who are moving to the point of retirement, and that is putting an unprecedented amount of financial pressure on the system. And if somehow a Canadian government can figure out a way to ensure they stay in power while moving the age to 67, I think they would do it because it allows them that freedom where the pensions don't get accessed for a few more years and therefore that money and yes pension funds are separated from operating fees of government but these pension funds do cost governments a lot a lot of money and uh, the big pressure point is coming now as our population ages and that baby boomer grouping sort of pushes its way through retirement. Yeah, I mean, uh, the decision by Mr. Trudeau, I understand why it would be popular, but it was, one would argue, a political decision, not certainly not a financial decision. Some would even argue not a responsible decision. Life expectancy today in Canada is 82 years uh, compared to 77 in 1990. Yeah. I'm just looking at uh, if Canada uh, is one of just seven Seven OECD member nations where the pension eligibility age is not currently set to rise, which I find very interesting. In the U.S., um, government pension payments cannot be claimed by anyone born since 1960 until they reach their 67th birthday. Um, so that's a very interesting numbers. Now, one would argue, well, well, the Europeans are much more generous. Well, the study by the Fraser Institute found that 16 of the 22 countries covered have increased or plan to increase retirement program age thresholds above 65 and five of those nations think of this denmark finland italy netherlands and portugal all of them will want to link eligibility increases to life expectancy so those are probably the most generous of european nations the denmark finland the italy north netherlands and portugal and even there they're raising this issue it's, it, it is um i mean i don't know who how you do this and mr harper certainly did but some would argue well that was part of his demise that uh, that's how we uh, mr trudeau was able to get some of the some attract some of those votes i mean how do you do this now i mean i don't know how you sell this i'm going to make sure you work a little bit longer please vote for me yeah especially now with the shortages we're seeing in the system universally right mm-hmm. there are pressure points as younger people find different ways to do traditional work these jobs are many of the jobs that have been long-term sustaining work in our public service and in our private sector that aren't the sort of jobs, mostly, that young people want to step in immediately and say, sign me up for this. And that's going to be a problem for 
the government, for employers as well. So there are some really significant pressure points going on. And as life expectancy, it's it's not getting any less. It's going to, keep, going to continue to go up. Those trends that you were mentioning, comparing back to 1990, we look 20 years down the road here, and that age is likely going to jump up another five to 10 years. Yeah. And for every year you jump up, there's more financial pressure put on the system because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk uh, about another issue, but this is local. Uh, The Powell River Queen is being sold after decades of working on BC's coast. Uh, uh, For 58 years, uh, the Powell River Queen has been uh, working uh, and running between Campbell River and Quadra Island. Uh, It is now up for sale. Uh, It looks like it's going to be auctioned off by Ritchie Brothers. And so far, the highest offer is $82,000. And I saw that number, I thought, you know, it, 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 you know, imagine buying a ferry and could you not refurbish it? And let's say you put a couple hundred thousand dollars in, that's a lot of money, but you're getting the ferry for 82000 And this thing's, you know, it's not a bad size. It used to hold 400 passengers, 61 vehicles. I mean, you could almost have a house, but you would think at a pretty good rate. Yeah, you could, but I'm not sure you'd want a boat that was built back in 1965, but it would be a hell of a place to hold a party, for sure, Jazz. I'm not sure <laughs> it's one of those things that you could operate anymore as a reliable ferry. But just park if, it. We know we know based on what BC Ferries does, Jazz, they milk as much out of those vessels as they can get. But it sure would be fun. Maybe we could team up a you know global CKNW ferry that wanders around uh, and moves to listeners and viewers around Vancouver for tours in the summer. Well, if it sells for eighty-two, let's say you put a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand. So look, let's say it's under that's three hundred thousand. You think you could moor it somewhere? You got yourself a little uh, yeah. houseboat, or maybe it's a pop-up restaurant, but on the water. Maybe that's what it is. I just it's a, it's, BC Ferries is moving uh, moving along in regards to slowly but surely replacing a lot of these older vessels that have done done their gig for a BC taxpayers, haven't they? They sure have, and you would have a piece of BC history, that's for sure. But I think we all expect at some point, I know this is Richie's brothers, but we'll have to look at BC bid because at some point a wood splitter may become available and you too could also own a piece of BC's history in that regard. But, is it- you know, we, we need these vessels to work. We have had challenges over time about where we build our BC ferries, but these have been reliable vessels that last a long time. And the province does try to maximize, or BC ferries does try to maximize the usability of vessels like this one. But it is, it does sound like a deal to me. 82000 bucks. Maybe after someone hears this, they say, well, this is a, an offer that's too good to be true. I've got to put in a bid. But I think part of it is, like you said, expensive to more, yeah. expensive to repair. And then there's another... Sort of an aside, but there was this passenger ferry that ran from Victoria to Vancouver for a few years before the pandemic, Uh and that company went out of business. That vessel was sitting in Victoria's Inner Harbor for more than two years without being operating, and somebody was paying that bill because they couldn't get it off their hands. So I don't think there's a huge market for secondhand ferries in this province, or even in some cases worldwide. That's true. By the way, did, was that uh, wood chipper sold, or is it, or is it still the property no, of the government? No, it hasn't come up yet. We don't know where it is. At one point, it was in the hands of the RCMP, but the wood splitter is still the property of the BC legislature, but we have been told that eventually it, it may get sold. I, I keep refreshing BC bid just to see yeah. if it's available, because eventually the province will determine they don't need it, and, and a lucky British Columbians will get to have their hands in one of the most fascinating scandals in political history. Well, in do you BC. remember there was also luggage pur- purchase, was there not, uh, yeah, there as well? Was. Yeah, because uh, when I was MLA... I don't know where that is. There were some s- subscriptions to magazines as well. I'm not yeah. sure where they are. There's some suits. So all of those things still exist somewhere. Well, I, I was thinking, and I was hoping, and I don't know if that luggage is sold. My, my goal was that when I was MLA to actually put a bid in for that luggage. And then well, offer it up, and, and, and then just put it in the front of the front mirror of my constituency office, and call it the people's <laughs> luggage. So if you ever needed extra luggage, you could come by and just borrow it from the MLA. That was my goal. <laughs> it didn't come up for sale. So. It was supposed to be for you. The clerk said it was supposed to be for all MLAs to use. No, I'd, I'd I buy it. I'd buy it out of my own pocket <laughs> and make it available and call it the people's luggage because they paid for it initially. So there, there you go. Thanks so much, Richard. My pleasure as always. Thanks for the chat, Jeff. 
Well, earlier this week, former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart announced he has returned to Simon Fraser University after losing the mayoral race to Ken Sim. Mr. Stewart is the new director of the Centre for Public Policy Research. Uh, Stewart was already a tenured associate professor when he took a 12-year leave of absence um, to serve as a member of parliament and then mayor of Vancouver from 2018 to 2022. Now, according to SFU, Stewart will release a book later this year titled Decrim, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia. Kennedy Stewart joins us now. Mr. Stewart, thank you for joining us today. Hey, great to be here, Jeff. Uh, a huge change for you. Uh, back to SFU, uh, one would argue your academic home. Uh, what's it like getting back to academia? Well, I mean, I did enjoy politics for over a decade, both in Ottawa and at City Hall, but uh, I do really miss writing and teaching. So uh, I've been uh, back in the hallways talking to students and getting ready to uh, teach some courses. So I'm really, really excited to get back to it. And I love SFU. It's such a great university. Mm -hmm. Now, you're coming out with a new book, and I do believe it's coming out in May, called Decrim, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia. Uh, What um, was the impetus for you, the desire for you? It's one thing to be involved in the policy conversation and implementation, but what uh, was the desire? What forced you to say, you know what, I got to write a book about this? Well, a couple of things. Uh, First of all, it's, it's, you know, one of the biggest health policy disasters in the country. I mean, we have one person a day dying here of toxic drugs uh, in, in the city and almost seven a day across the province. And it's just getting worse. And so that, scale of human tragedy is, is uh, you know, it's something should be at the top of all our agendas. And uh, for me, the book is about uh, policy change. It's about how decriminalization is, is a big change. It's, it's probably close to, um, you know, legalizing cannabis. And those, those two things are different, but they're, it's a big policy change. And I think we really need to talk about it and understand it because it, it will make some difference. Uh, and and I do think it's important for the public to understand how we got here. And for our public, it's important to also know uh, that as of January 31st, people age 18 and older will be able to possess up to a, a cumulative two and a half grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamines, and MDA, MDMA within the province. Um, that's a lower threshold than, I guess, a four and a half grams that is presently um, the law. Uh, in many ways, some would argue police have not been picking people up or arresting them when it comes to having some of the those very drugs uh, in their possession for personal use. We, to a certain degree, indirectly have decriminalized a long time ago, have we not, in practice? Yeah, I mean, that's a really a great point to bring up, and this would not have happened without the support of uh, uh, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer and the National Association of Police Chiefs, who are behind decriminalization, and you're right, the VPD have not been arresting people or charging people for the possession of drugs, for for, uh, hard drugs, for quite a long time. But there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, uh, the the police officer can be placing themselves at risk by kind of turning a a blind eye to to somebody that's holding a specific level of drugs because they're bound to enforce the laws of Canada. And so that has always been a gray area, and I think that's why the, the police chiefs are at least partly uh, supportive of this. Uh, the second is, though, police still seize drugs. And so if you're, say, caught for shoplifting or something and you have drugs on you, police often seize those drugs. And what happens is then the drug user is pushed into very risky behavior to, uh, to kind of get, uh, to get their, next, uh, their next fix. And I think that is... Uh, that's been kind of um, a silent theme that uh, that this will uh, this will now correct, and I think that those are two things that are that are going to be very helpful. Uh, how massive is this transition uh, that will begin uh, February first? It it's it's biggest for police officers, and I would say police officers outside of Vancouver. So again, Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, has been at the center of drug policy reform for a very long time. Uh, First needle exchange in in Canada back in the back in the 80s, and then of course the supervised consumption sites, and and so I think the police here are, are very well versed in in harm reduction and, and why it's valuable. But it's the police in in other communities around the province that are uh, they're going to have to make the biggest adjustments. And I, and I think what'll be very interesting is to see what the RCMP does, who of course uh, police so many of the small communities around the province. Um. 
What was it like um, having these conversations at the city level as mayor, but also as a former member of parliament um, at the House of Commons? Uh, talk to me a little bit about the transition, the conversation within government at the federal and municipal level that has actually led to this uh, moment that's coming on February 1st for you. What was it like in the corridors of power behind those closed doors? And I think that's where I can add value is, is you know, having one-on-one conversations with the prime minister and various health ministers as, I mean, for example, uh, back early in my mayor's tenure, uh, the prime minister said right to my face twice that he was never going to decriminalize drugs. And I think it's important to show how pressure from the local community, from, from healthcare professionals, uh, from police, from First Nations, and uh, from uh, various uh, mayors and councillors around uh, British Columbia really changed the mind of the Prime Minister and and got us to where we are now. So the book that I'm writing kind of provides an account of that, and and I think why it's useful is because you know we're far from out of this problem. This decriminalization will I think have some impact on reducing uh, deaths due to toxic drugs, but it won't go all the way. And um, how do we move governments to do to a more progressive uh, drug policy is uh, is what I hope will come uh, for others who are, are taking up this charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there have been some. There's been some criticism uh, about this decriminalization policy. Uh, some folks have, have said that look, it will not save lives. Although some have said it's a step in the right direction. But there have been critics who said, look, uh, we haven't been able to save lives even with B- BC's sort of harm reduction, particularly Vancouver's harm reduction policies. I, I think Jason Kenney at one point, the former Premier of Alberta, even said he was alarmed at uh, this, what was happening in Vancouver in regards to decriminalizing um, the, the, the possession of a small amount of, uh, of drugs, hard drugs. What do you say to those who are still very much concerned at this policy to say this is the wrong way to go? This is not how you help these people. Well, just like the pandemic, I mean, I follow the, uh, the health policy research and the advice of of the doctors who uh, who are in this every day. And so that's really what drove my awareness of this. I mean, if you see early quotes from me, uh, even as early as 2019, I was saying that this decriminalization wasn't something we would pursue, but then myself was convinced to go after this and then uh, had like-minded people in, in Ottawa who, who kind of helped move this change along. Uh, so there are critics on both sides. You just have to look at my Twitter feed to see the <laughs> the kind of uh, the kind of I would say hard left and hard right. Um, you know the hard left saying, you know you're you're capitalizing on people's misery and and this isn't going to make anything. You're just you're just a, a giant egomaniac. Whatever that's that's uh, you know sticks and stones. But on the other side, you have folks who uh, are frankly biased against drug users. They think they're somehow lesser humans. Just the deplorable things that you that you read online or hear what's said to your face is those are the two poles. And in an increasingly polarized um, political climate, it's not surprising. And my uh, my attempt is to try to reach the reasonable middle uh, and to try to to help move this along and building on the good work of, of those who have come before me, who have been very many and have, and have, have really uh, done a lot to, uh, to to move these policies along. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Kennedy Stewart, former mayor of Vancouver, former member of parliament, now uh, back to his academic home at Simon Fraser University, where uh, he has authored a book called Decrim, uh, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia. The book is coming out um, uh, in May. Um, when did you decide to write it? I'm just curious. Like, was it was it a case right after election day? Said I got to get this done, or you, were, <laughs> were you? Which is which is a pretty fast book. But it, I mean, you you must have been keeping notes, writing, uh, even as your time as mayor when it comes to this book. Yeah, I mean, this is my my fifth book. Um, when I was a member of parliament, I, I managed to to do two. Uh, one I'm really proud of. I um, co-edited with uh, Michael Chong, who's a Conservative MP, and Scott Sims. Who's a former uh, former Liberal MP, so it was a real cross-partisan effort. Uh, so I really enjoy writing; it's one of my favorite things to do. And I was uh, keeping notes all the way along, thinking that this might be something, if it came true, that people would be interested in. And now, um, you know, at my job at, at Simon Fraser as an academic, you, you're supposed to produce uh, published research. So uh, yeah, so it fits in very well with the current position that I hold. And again, I, I really love writing, and I think. Uh, I think it's a story worth worth telling. So, 
Yep, uh, right after the election, I uh, talked to my uh, publisher, Douglas McIntyre, and asked him if they were interested in this, and now I'm just turning my notes into, um, you know, something that people can decipher <laughs> and, and uh, think about. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious, um, you know, there's going to be folks listening to this saying, wait a minute, where does law enforcement fit into this in regards to law and order? Where does accountability fit into this in regards to you know, people at least knowing that they could end up in jail uh, in, in regards to this issue. What do you say to those who say, look, law and order and accountability uh, should also be part of uh, whatever drug policy that we have? What do you say to that argument? Well, that's, that's why I thought it was important that really this, uh, the, the provincial um, application for a federal exemption to decriminalize came from the city's uh, application. So we had submitted an application to Health Canada, and that application had the support of uh, Chief Palmer, who's, who sat on a, a panel that uh, helped design uh, this policy and had the support of, of the national police chiefs as well. So uh, this would not have moved ahead without, uh, without the, um, you know, the partnership with police, who in the end, this is... Uh, this is about policing. It's about changing uh, police policy and, and really removing, removing them a little bit further from the lives of drug users who are uh, dying. When it comes to uh, all the regular stuff police do, when it comes to trafficking, uh, you know, uh, I hope they redouble their efforts and to go after the folks that are bringing these poisons into our communities. So I do think there's a, a balanced approach there. It's interesting that um, Benjamin, Benjamin Perrin, who was... Uh, Chief Legal Counsel to Stephen Harper uh, reached out to me the other day, and he's also uh, had a change of heart on uh, on drug policy. Uh, once was a very staunch, uh, you know, law and order uh, approach, has now uh, changed his mind through his own experiences. So I do think that's, uh, you know, and that's what I think these kind of books are, are, are trying to do is, is to change people's minds so we can save lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you touched a little bit about uh, the criticism you, you, you've uh, received on social media. Um, you know, if, if you got to be king for a day, what would you want to change about politics? You've got significant experience uh, at the municipal level, at the federal level. Uh, you've talked to provincial politicians. I mean, you're not just talking about politics in theory. You've been in the trenches now. Uh, mm-hmm. How much, uh, number one, what would you like to see change uh, more than well, anything uh, I, I do think, I mean, you know, I, I think about your business, for example, media, where your industry has been very hard hit with the evolution of social media and other streams, and it really has cut back on the amount of, I think, thoughtful reporting that's there. It still exists, but it's less uh, prominent than it used to be. So I would really like to see, you know, more reporters with more time to actually weigh things out and explain them to people. Uh, rather than the kind of quick hit stories that we we kind of get more often now. So a really, uh, I think, uh, more time for people to chew over things rather than just simply react would be very helpful for everyone. Uh, I do think, too, um, my experience, and I, I see this because uh, I was guilty of it myself in opposition. You know, when you're when you're an opposition politician, your job is to try to uh, make the government look bad, and uh, so you can replace them, but the government is busy governing, so they don't really have a lot of time to defend themselves. Uh, and I think that makes a very unbalanced kind of dialogue, and you're seeing that play out nationally with, uh, I think, with uh, Pierre Polyev, who's very good at, uh, at kind of whipping people up, but uh, weak on policy, and uh, say Trudeau, who's uh, having to run a country, but perhaps not as good as as attacking back at uh, at the conservatives, so I do think there's a very strange, uh, very strange discourse that's emerged. And uh, it'd be great if 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 media and I know your your resources are strained too, but could give a little more space for people to mm-hmm. have time to think about these tough issues. Uh, if there is a policy that you could reframe, uh, redo at the municipal level as mayor, is there one that you wish you had uh, approached differently? Yeah, I mean that's that's um, that's a good question. I mean, for me, next to the overdose uh, crisis, it was housing that that still haunts us, and I pushed very hard to um, to really, you know, a lot of our cities are reserved for uh, single-family homes, you know, for 
this kind of one family living on one lot type of thing. Uh, I think densifying uh, there allow for even six units. Uh, now we did get a, a, a policy passed through council, but we never got it implemented. I know they're kicking it around now at City Hall, and I really hope they they go forward with it because you know uh, overdoses are about about death, and that is that uh, that is really important for us to, to really the top issue as far as I'm concerned. But housing is is a huge impact on housing costs have a huge impact on families and residents and I and I really hope and I and I do hope I do see that David Eby as a new premier is trying very hard and it's up now it's up to councils to try as hard as well. Uh, and then maybe we'll make some progress there. But if we could have pushed a little harder, I think that would have uh, that's something I would have, you know, tried to do but didn't quite get there. Yeah. Well, Professor Stewart, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and yeah. I look forward to having you on again. I know this is going to be an issue that uh, we'll be discussing for in the weeks and months ahead uh, as February 1st approaches. And look forward to having you on again for your thoughts. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk to you later. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.